Welcome okay. to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, emotional health, psychological health and physical health awareness in men and society. First, it started with MAN, the acronym for Men Are Nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, Andy. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, my name is Rashi. Uh, Reshi Joseph. Um, I live in Bali, um, but I'm not from Bali, uh, as I'm sure you can tell from my accent. I was born in Singapore and uh, I'm half Chinese. My father is uh, ethnically Sri Lankan, but he lives in the UK. And I uh, grew up in Singapore, but then left uh, to go to the UK to boarding school. Um, and then eventually went to university, to medical school, and became a doctor. Um, and then, uh, you know, through a series of uh, twists and turns, if you like, uh, eventually came into mental health, uh, started off as a counselor, worked in the prison system, um, and then worked in a private clinic, and then worked in an inpatient Asia's largest inpatient rehab uh, for drugs and alcohol and then we'll started up a, a, what we call an intensive outpatient clinic for trauma psychological trauma and addictions in Singapore um, and then eventually you know built up enough of you know became a clinical psychologist got my qualifications and uh, eventually built up enough of a practice to go out on my own uh, and practice on my own and um, at some point you know I decided to move over to Bali um, so that I didn't have to work quite as hard as you would in Singapore and have a better lifestyle um, you know do a bit of surfing uh, you know all the stuff that Bali is very famous for you know and so I practice now primarily as a uh, as a psychotherapist, as a, as a psychologist. Um, I was also, for a brief period of time, there was a new new rehab set up in Bali. And usually, you know, having worked for the cabin, I believe, I believe in fact that you've interviewed my old boss, Ali Mordi, uh, yeah. who was uh, my, my program director when I was head of the trauma program at the cabin. Uh, so he was my old boss, and I still keep in touch with him. And um, yeah, and uh, <clears throat> after working for Asia's biggest and Asia's best, you know, I thought, well, I'm not, you know, carrying water for the sort of big money rehab industry anymore. Um, you know, even though I was approached uh, many times, you know, to set up, you know, because there's, there's because there's money in it. There's a lot of money in it. Well, there was until until you know. Uh, travel suddenly became uh, now and impossible. You know, yeah. There was a lot of money in it, uh, but I just, I just said no. But then I was approached by a group of people who, you know, I mean, everyone says they're different. You know, we're not in this for the money. You know, we're in this to, you know, really to help people. The usual sort of thing. But then I discovered that these these guys were they were serious about it. And they were willing to put their money where their mouths were. So I agreed to be 
clinical director and I set up their facility for them. I trained their staff, I wrote their manual, I created their program, um, you know, basically set up the whole place for them and then stepped back as a clinical consultant for a year. So they would only consult me on difficult cases. You know, they would only bring yeah. me in if they had a situation that they couldn't manage kind of thing. And I'm basically just working in private practice. Uh, I specialize in PTSD, psychological trauma, um, you know, disorders of extreme stress, um, you know, and, and addictions, which often go along with that. Uh, anxiety disorders, etc., uh, etc. Et um, yeah, and I think that's essentially me in a nutshell. I mean, in addition to that, you know, I'm I am myself an addict in recovery. Uh, I don't uh, think it's necessary for me to go into the sort of gory details of all the horrific, uh, ghastly things that I did. But you know, I was a but I've been there myself as an addict, you know, so I'm in recovery myself. So I have, uh, you know, there's a personal element to what I do as well as a professional element to what I do. Um, and you know, trauma is what I'm known best for. And it's what I do most of. I would say probably 70% of my clients uh, fall into that, that diagnostic category. Uh, so, yeah, that's me in a nutshell i hope uh, that answers your question uh well andy and over that, to you and that was the end of the podcast <laughs> no oh. <laughs> no um you know what you you obviously bring, you, you, you obviously bring a wealth of you know you do i mean I'm, i mean i'm saying that as a joke but that's um i'm saying that in a kind yeah. of light heart then because you bring a wealth of knowledge yeah. and experience. Um, um, you yeah. The gory bits, the, the not so nice bits, the nicer bits. You bring a lot of wealth, of, you know, a lot yeah. of different avenues, different things that you've gone through to to yeah. maybe find, maybe maybe I haven't even find your place yet, but maybe that's this is your place for now in what you're in what you're doing. Yeah, something else. Um, as we know that we're yeah. humans. Um, we go through so many different things it might be something else in, in, in involved with mental health so absolutely so, absolutely so barley um, let's talk about barley first before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of you know of, of your you know your personal experiences and things that have happened um what is sure. bar- where is barley sure. and what's it like okay barley is an island um i mean it's I'm trying to think of, I mean, it's quite a big island. I mean, it's not quite as big as, uh, as uh, Borneo or anything like that, but it's quite a, you know, quite a sizable island. Um, usually, I say usually, you know, because things are very different at the moment, but usually, you know, the population of about four, four and a half million inhabitants, you know, the volcanoes, um, you know, it's listed as one of the top 10 surfing destinations in the world. Uh, you know, we have everybody from, you know, Kelly Slater, Mick Banning, you know, all the best surfers in the world come down here. Every year there is a Quicksilver or a Rip Curl, you know, they, they, you know, there are waves. Um, what makes Bali so attractive for surfing is that um, you have waves that are suitable for absolute beginners, you know, sort of 
knee height, you know, nice, soft, foamy waves, you know, that even if you fall off your big foamy board, you know, you just, you know, land on the sands, all the way up to, in fact, at the moment, we've got a, we've got a really big swell coming in, um, and uh, there's a wave all the way down, at the, right down at the southern tip, a place called Uluwatu, and there's several famous breaks there. You know, that's where the serious boys go. And a wave that's normally sort of 12 to 14, 15 feet high is uh, about 30 to 35 feet high uh, on, the, on the surface of the wave. So all the all the uh, the big wave boys are, you know, riding down there with their you know their 10 foot guns strapped to them, their motorbikes, and I see them on the road. Um, yeah, but you gotta, you got, you've got to be very good to take on one of those, and uh, unfortunately, you know, that that's uh, that that's way beyond that's way beyond my my <laughs> capacity. You know, I, I you know I sort of stick to the six of the you know four four five feet. You know, is about my maximum. You know, yeah. and, and on the one on the one occasion where I very foolishly, uh, you know, against the advice of the uh, Indonesian. Uh, you know, surf pals that I was with, you know, very foolishly ignored their advice to not take a wave that turned out to be something like a, a you know, eight, ten foot, you know, maybe even twelve foot uh, wave. Uh, you know, I got completely what we call wiped out. You know, smashed by the wave and you know, tore up all the tendons in my knee. And, you know, so, so yes, Bali, you know, surf is, 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 is a very big part of it here. But the other big part of it is it has, it also draws the, the sort of the new age um, people, you know, so there are a lot of yoga centers here. There are a lot of people who are into the sort of the new age, you know, mysticism, you know, there's a lot of veganism here, there's a lot wellness, of, yeah, yeah people into, it. yeah, wellness, you know, and it's every kind of um, Eastern, uh, you know, orthodox and unorthodox healing that you can possibly find, you know, things like the pyramids of chi, you know, you go into them and they sort of vibrate the sound and it sort of heals you in some way or people who could have kind of dance around you with crystals and you know it it, it attracts um uh you know a certain a certain type of person i mean on the one hand you do have the the areas that sort of cater for for you know what are what are called the boules boule is the indonesian word for an expat you know someone like myself you yeah. know that's you know kind of almost first world you know i say almost because it's it's the infrastructure is still pretty creaky but then when you get out of get out of these you know small enclaves and you see the real bali i mean you know it's a completely different place a very very big island and most of the uh, most of the uh, the the, the, bullets, the, uh, the expats like myself we're all concentrated right down in the south um, and on a little, little bit that's attached at the bottom, of, uh, right down at the bottom of Bali, you know, called the Bukit, and uh, which translates to peninsula in, in Indonesian. You know, and we're, and we're all down in this little area, so you know, it's also where you know, the surf is great. And, uh, yeah, 
So you've got a mixture of, you know, sort of surface and, and you know, you know, that sort of, you know, beach lovers, you know, uh, you know beautiful girls that have Bali. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever been to a place where I've seen so many beautiful women in one place, you know, beautiful, you know, just sort of tanned, beach blonde, you know, Australian, Californian, you know, Norwegian babe, you know, just, it's a place, you know, where beautiful people seem to congregate, you know, but then on the other hand, there is this very sort of spiritual, mystic side to it, you know, I mean, everybody here is, myself included, very heavily into meditation, into yoga, into, um, you know, the, the sort of, uh, you want to, if I dare use the word, uh, spiritual way of life, uh, you know, we're, we're attracted by that, you know, person that comes and lives in Bali comes here for, for that for those sorts of things you know you don't you don't come to Bali because you want to uh, create a fortune five for the company you know people don't come to Bali for that you know, you, they, they you know the sort of person who would be attracted to say New York or to Tokyo or to Singapore or to Bangkok or Jakarta or, or Sydney you know where you go and you know you make your mark in the world and you build a company and you you know become very successful you know that that's not the sort of person that that Bali attracts Bali attracts a completely different sort of person um, and you know I in spite of the the fact that um, you know I'm a you know on the surface of it anyway you know sort of supposedly highly trained professional, you know, the professional classes, you know, trained doctor, and, you know, trained psychologist and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I guess maybe <laughs> I'm a sort of hippie at heart, I don't know, you know, because I, I find much more commonality with um, the lifestyle here, the way of life here, the way of thinking, um, the way of living. Uh, certainly, uh, than I do uh, when I lived in London or, or when I lived in Singapore. Uh, you know, and yeah, and I would say that living in Bali, you know, is probably. I mean, you can't see what I'm looking at now, but you know, there's a gentle breeze that's flowing through a villa that's you know pretty much five minutes walk from the beach. So I've got the you know the wind coming off the beach. You know. The garden is, you know, lit up with the, you know, the palm fronds, you know, with lights, and I can see my pool glistening, um, you know. So, yeah, you, you, you know, it, it's a, it's it's a good life, you know, but it, it, you know, it's not for everybody. You know, if you wanna, if you wanna make your mark in the world, if you wanna achieve something, then this is, I don't think this is the place, you know, kind of thing. When you described yeah. it, then I was almost almost telling you to stop, stop. I'm I'm there, I'm there, I'm coming, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm on my way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a big difference between taking a holiday in Bali, which a lot of people obviously do, because yeah. you know, with more people coming to Bali on holiday than there are people who live in Bali. But there is a big difference coming here on holiday, which is great. Because you know the world famous beaches you know you've got the surf breaks you've got the you know the 
best, some of the best restaurants in the world, the best hotels in the world. You know, you got all of the famous stuff. You know, but it's a different thing coming here as a tourist and then going back to the first world and living here. Uh, where you very quickly realize, you know, that it may look like it's the first world, but it really is, you know, third world infrastructure. You know, so just their ability to control the traffic, you know, which at the moment is one of the enjoyable things about the coronavirus, because obviously, you know, tourism is the single uh, you know, biggest industry. In fact, it's the it really is the only industry in Bali and because we don't have tourists coming in. Um, the streets are virtually, you know, the streets are, uh, you know, just, you know, the traffic jams that, that Bali became completely infamous for are just completely disappeared. You know, and the roads are clear and the, all the guys who live here, you know, going out for a surf, you know, they, they're not, we're not having to jostle, you know, with 40 Australian tourists, you know, to get on a wave, you know, and so, you know, it's a bit of a, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, look, it's, it's sad in, in the sense that, you know, the fact that the tourists not coming means a lot of people have been put out of work, but, you know, we're still, we're, still, we're, we're getting by, you know, we're, we're keeping it together, we're holding it together. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, so, yeah, it's almost yeah. like it's almost what, what you're painting. It's almost what you're saying there is that Bali has this. Um, it's almost as like it's not. I can't say two different worlds, but it could be that you know we're in certain aspects, maybe near, near the beach area or around that area. Certain areas, it's it's quite eclectic, quite chilled out, and then you've got the hustle and bustle uh. of and the not so peaceful side of the other, the other side. Um, so, you you you've come from. You spoke at the beginning. You you you've obviously got a mix, not just a mixed background in terms of what you do, but a mixed background yourself, um, in terms of family. Let's talk about what yeah. a, bit, a little bit about your journey, because because what I'm trying what I'm always trying to get trying to find out is what makes humans help each other. Why is it that? What is it? What is it right. that puts you in that? What what is it? Why is it that you're helping others? And quite often, it's right. obviously something to do with the childhood or things that they've come across growing up. Um, so that's where I try and um, just try to figure out where where that has come from. Is it was it a bad moment in your life, and then all of a sudden you thought, oh, you know what, I really need to get out there and help people. Yeah. So really, it's about your journey. So let's talk about some of the things you has happened to you or things that growing up as a child and things like that. Oh, okay, I'm, uh, I guess if we're going to talk about why I'm, uh, you know, in a healing, in one of the healing professions, um, I'm the son of, you know, my, my father was, he's retired now, but he was a very prominent surgeon and I come from a medical family, my cousins, uncles, you know, I mean, you just draw a pencil and you'll hit a doctor in my family. You know, like I, I come from one of those families yeah. and I did well at school. And, you know, it was just, it was kind of assumed that that was what I would do, you know. And I remember as a, as a young boy, uh, you know, on the rare occasion where I would uh, accompany my father to hospital, you know, and I would see him, you know, take very, very, very sick children and 
make them well, you know, which I thought was, was, you know, to a young boy, I thought, well, that was very cool. And, and we would have these hampers, you know, being sent to the house every, every Christmas. I remember our, our, our house was just covered in these hampers. I would sit and I would read. Uh, because he was a pediatric surgeon, so he operated on children. So I would read the cards that these parents would write, you know, and the, the, just the gratitude that, that, that came over. And I think it was then that I, I you know, felt, felt the pull, you know, towards, you know, that, that uh, you know, towards the medical planet, if you like. You know, and, and I really felt that, that I was on this planet, you know, for a single purpose and that was you know to alleviate uh, human suffering in, in any way that I could and it was just assumed that you know you did well in school you got the grades you know you go to medical school become a dad become a doctor become a surgeon like that you know so I did uh, but unfortunately uh, you know other things intervened you know I mean although on the surface of it uh, you know, my childhood seems, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, a perfectly scripted childhood. You know, if you were to look under the bonnet, as it were, you would see that there were, you know, some serious, serious problems uh, that were present that uh, didn't surface until after I became a doctor and started practicing and was in the process of you know, becoming, uh, you know, getting my registration, getting fully, you know, specializing. And I was going to go on, I think I was going to go on and become a neurosurgeon or, or, or something, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't until I was, you know, I, it, addiction came to me sort of quite late, you know, a lot of addicts. I mean, for example, you know, my very good friend and mentor and, and, and colleague uh, Ali, who you spoke to, you know, yeah. his, his story is perhaps a little more typical. You know, it's sort of, you know, broken family, you know, um, you know, chucked onto the streets on the the age of twelve. You know, get get in with the wrong crowd. You know, start drinking at the age of thirteen. You know, start shoplifting by the age of fourteen, and you know, shooting heroin by the age. Of, you know, that's that that is not my story. My story is, in fact, a, a complete anomaly. It, it, it does not follow that path at all. You know, I didn't even start taking drugs or you know, the, the sort of serious drugs till I was. Um, until I graduated medical school and started working as a doctor, um, you know, and uh, it would, I think, take too long for me to really go into what all the details were. But you know, just as a sort of, uh, uh, it's a simplistic way to explain it. Certain events, uh, call them traumas, if you like. You know, sort of emerged or began to emerge, you know, in my late twenties and my early thirties, and I simply did not have uh, emotional, psychological systems. You know, I did not have the resilience to deal with it, and so I turned to substances. You know, initially to alcohol, which a lot of doctors do. Yeah. You know, very. Very, very prevalent, but eventually, you know, I mean, you're a doctor, 
And in those days in the NHS, if you're a doctor, I mean, you, could, you know, they're a lot stricter these days. But back in those days, you could let's just walk into the cold room and take anything you wanted, you know. So I would just, you know, before I knew it, I was, you know, helping myself, you know, to the, you know, the large bars of, you know, morphine and, and, and you know, sort of whatever else I, you know, it took to, to quell this, this terrible pain that I felt inside. Um, and so that went on, you know, for quite a long time. And even through the period of addiction, you know, I mean, eventually I got caught and got suspended um, you know, by the General Medical Council, you know, until this day actually remained suspended. I never actually got struck off. They suspended me and I was supposed to go through a period of rehabilitation and then go back and be re-examined, but I just simply didn't go back. So I, you know, if you look look up my name under the GMC um, records, I, you know, I think you'll still find that I'm listed as suspended, which is odd seeing as I haven't, I haven't practiced, you know, in, in I don't know, 20 years or something. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so you know, that then led on to you know about a decade of um, a slow but inevitable spiral downwards, you know, initially slowly, you know, and initially I was able to keep up the, the pretense you know, because I was able by one means or another to, you know, charm my way to, you know, some quite good, good situations and had, you know, the sort of flashy cars. And, you know, at one time I lived in, uh, lived on Fulham, Fulham Palace Road, I, I've lived on, uh, not uh, Turks Row, which is near, you know, which is near Sloan Street, you know, hung out with models, and, you know, had all that kind of, all that, all, all the trappings, you know, that, that go along with the drug world. And, and, you know, and thought I was super cool, you know, and I thought of my, my poor, you know, um, idiot, you know, uh, friends from medical school, you know, doing their ghastly hours, you know, 100 hours a week of, of you know, grinding through anesthesiology uh, or, or, you know, obstetrics or whatever it was. And there I was, you know, sort of sitting in a flat in, in, in Turks Row or Mary Wharf and, you know, and partying with, with you know, because I had drugs and money and, and, and beautiful women, you know, but that, of course, you know, there's a honeymoon period, but there's a reason that they call it a honeymoon period because it very quickly ends. Yeah. And, you know, towards the end, you know, I mean, the, the, there was no party to be had, you know, towards the end, it was just, uh, it was just, it was, I was no longer living. I was simply existing, um, you know, to obtain the money, to obtain drugs. And that was what I was doing one day to the next. Yeah. Um, I was but say, eventually, I was going to uh, say, sorry to cut you there, but what what was how was you funding that lifestyle in a sense? Was it was it worm, was it like a series of you know people that you met? How or was it family? What was funding that life, lifestyle? Well, I funded it. I think I want to be a little bit careful here because not everything that I did to fund that lifestyle it was strictly legal. In fact, yeah. a lot of it 
was was very shady indeed. Um, but what I had was, um, you know, a plummy public school accent and a medical degree, you know, and so, you know, I mean, look, if you wanted to run a con job and you needed someone to play a doctor, you know, the person you would get would be me because I wouldn't have to play a doctor. I am a doctor, <laughs> you know, yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, an anomaly and I was unusual and I was well-spoken and, 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 you know, it was very different from the sort of usual sort of thuggish elements. And so, uh, you know, people in that world, you know, all, will always find someone like me to be of value to them in certain ways and of course their value to me was that they were able to supply me with the drugs that I wanted and the lifestyle that I wanted girls and what, stuff. And what, um, what did your what did your drugs I mean you said you talk you were taking when you were um, uh, when you was part of the registry you said you were you was morphine did you end up taking like party drugs you know you know what? You know cocaine. What what other drugs do you extend yourself into? Well, I pretty much, you know, I mean, I pretty much took every, you know. I think it would be easier for me to list the drugs I haven't taken, than the <laughs> yeah. drugs I have. Yeah, I think that would that would be an easier exercise. But you know, I think I ended up in the place that most addicts at that time ended up in, which was with a, a dual habits of crack cocaine and heroin mm -hmm. those were you know, the, yes. the, the alpha and the omega you know the dark and the white those were the two things that went together uh you know they were you know almost made you know to go together perfectly and you know in that day and age in, in the uk that was that was uh you know that was that was that was the the end of the road you know that was where uh, you ended up when things spiraled right down to the bottom and yes you, know, you end up a heroin addict and a crack cocaine addict and uh, you know, you'll do whatever you have to do to you know keep that going I mean I was fortunate in the sense that with you know being highly educated and, and uh, you know being very well spoken I didn't have to resort to the sort of petty theory that uh, uh, a lot of uh, people that I knew had to. You know, I could I could very often charm my way into situations where I would become the beneficiary of uh, of uh, people would fund you know, either out of a misguided sense of kindness or, or a desire to help or. or whatever um, you know and so yes I mean I didn't I didn't I didn't have to go out there and, and, and you know commit crime as it were you know I was you know well put together enough and well spoken enough to be able to, to sort of half charm my way through it and half black my way through it I don't know you know, but there's only so long you can do that for because eventually, you know, there is there is this thing that this word that we like to use in addiction, and the word that we use is progression. You know, yeah. and you'll see it very often. 
very often, you know, you'll find what we call functional addicts. You know, they 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 seem to have it together. You know that they are, you know, they are snorting cocaine at every given opportunity, and they're you know throwing down you know half a bottle of vodka, you know, a day. You know, but somehow they manage to get in the office and you know sell you know ten million dollars. I mean, you know, my my second sponsor, very, 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 very close friend of mine, you know, who was a very, very senior uh, member in a very, very big investment bank, told me he said, you know, he could go in, he could go in on a Friday afternoon, loaded up on cocaine, and outsell in one afternoon what everyone else in the office had sold in a week. You know, so it was it was that sort of thing, yeah. and um, you know, but unfortunately, you, you know, you that 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 lulls you into this sort of uh, 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 false sense of uh, you, know, you, you think that this party is never going to end, that uh, you know that uh, you're going to you know you've gotten away with it. That you're way too smart to end up like those poor, poor sods, you know, who are sort of begging on the streets and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, I remember the very first NA, NA meeting, you know, on Narcotics Anonymous, you know, well, NAAA, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. I went to, you know, I went, I, I went to it, you know, in in a, in a silk suit and you know, sort of handmade Italian shoes, you know, driving a, a drop top BMW, you know, sat in there. You know, and looked around at, you know, people who just come out of prison, you know, people with missing teeth. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing here? You know? And I simply did not see that I had much more in common with them yeah. than, you know, I could possibly have imagined. But it took me another five years to find out just how much I had in common by them. By the time, I did find out, you know, things really had gotten, you know, pretty ghastly. You know, I think grotesque would not be a, uh, an inappropriate word to use. So, like, like all addicts, uh, you know, we often uh, use this phrase. You know, we, we we hit rock bottom. I mean, people often ask me, well, 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 well. well when do you know you hit you hit rock bottom? Yeah. What is your rock bottom? Yeah. How how do you you know as a concept you know is it is it like you just know that you can't go any lower? I mean, it's it's a difficult concept to 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 explain because it's not about the fact that you can't go any lower because you can always go lower. You know, if you've been to jail, you can go back to jail. You know. If you've overdosed, you could overdose again. You know, I mean, the ultimate rock bottom is to die. You know, so you know there is always a, a level lower to which you can sink. You know, so yeah. looking at a rock bottom that way is, I think, uh, futile. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's it's uh, uh, you know it's it it it's why it, it doesn't explain what a rock bottom really is. What it really is, is it's a moment where the pain of using, you know, 
versus the pain of not using. You know, when the pain of using, right? You know, when you when having to use drugs, I mean, it's causing you an enormous amount of pain, having to get up every day and live this life that you absolutely abhor and hate. You can't even look at yourself in the mirror. That's how much you hate yourself. So that's the pain of using. Yeah. But then the pain of not using is the withdrawal, you know, and the and all of those horror, horrifying things that happen if you don't have the drugs, right? And you reach this moment where, you know, the pain of using actually becomes less than the pain of not using. Sorry, is it the other way around? The pain of you, yeah, sorry, what stops people is that the pain of using is still less than the pain of not using. But then you reach this point where the pain of using actually surpasses the pain of not using. So even though when you decide not to use and you're in terrible, terrible pain, you're still willing to stick with it because you know that going back, back to using is has now become even more painful where before yeah. it was actually a relief yeah. where before it was actually uh, an escape you know now it has actually become more painful than not using and for me i think that was the point at which you know if not using is actually less painful than using then what am i doing using you know i mean it's a phrase often used in the in the rooms as we say you know the drugs literally stop working they don't do anything you know you take more and more and more of the stuff and it does not quell the raging storm inside of you it does not do absolutely anything you know and uh, you know that's how i would define uh, what a rock bottom is and, yeah. Eventually, thankfully, I reached that, I reached that point and, and uh, you know entered the recovery process. You know, and the first couple of years are always very hard because you're just focused on you know not going back to the life you know that you've lived and that. You know, but but once you've got a couple of years under your belt, then you you know your brain sort of recovers enough, and you know, and most addicts are highly highly intelligent people i mean you know ali morty's perfect example of that i mean don't think this guy has uh you know a degree in anything you know i, I mean I, I don't even know if he's finished school but he's you know one of the most intelligent men i've met and he's written uh you know a, a, a treatment manual for addiction that would rival any uh, anywhere in the world, you know, most addicts, I think, you meet are, are often very, very, very intelligent people, and and it seems to be at, a, at about two years, your brain sort of switches on, and mine certainly did. And coming from a medical background, you know, the obvious question was, how the hell did this happen to me? Yeah. You know, this this was not supposed to be my life trajectory. I didn't come from. You know, a council estate in Brixton, you know, or or Stoke Newington, or or you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, come from 
a family, you know, with an alcoholic father, you know, and a, and a heroin addicted mother, you know, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from a family, you know, where we, uh, you know, were, you know, surrounded by, you know, uh, criminal uh, thugs, you know, stuff like that, violence, and, and you know, family members going to jail and all that, that sort of stuff. You know, and I just thought. You know, those are the people who become addicts. And you can see why they become addicts. But why did I become an addict? That shouldn't have been my life yet. You know, and so I, I, I simply had to on, had to, you know, and I, I searched, you know, and I read the books. And being a doctor, uh, you know, it, the, the natural thing for me to do would be to turn to the subject that I understood, which was medicine. And I turned to it for an answer, and you know, and I found that you know the the, the best minds in the world at the time, you know, had decided, you know, based on what the, what they felt the research said, you know, that addiction was was a disease. You know, it fits, you know, the the medical definition of a disease. You know, which in medicine, a disease is something with a demonstrable pathology. You know, that's discernible and, and definitive and, and do these brain scans on them on, on addicts and you can see the differences because of that you, know, you had very very preeminent people like Dr. Rod and Dr. Nora Volkow in uh, uh, the, you know, the director of uh, the National Institutes of uh, Drug Abuse in America very preeminent people uh, saying well we have is a disease. This is a disease, much like any chronic disease, you know, hypertension, diabetes, you know, and we treat it just like a chronic disease, you know, with constant follow-up, constant monitoring. You know, that's how you. That's how you treat things, you know. But it, that answer always bothered me, and I'll tell you why. You know it. Gave it. It did answer a lot of questions. You know, it answered. You know, the the sort of the what and the how and the when. You know, the, the sort of the mechanics, if you like, right? You know, sort of delving into the neuroscience of it. I mean, neuroscience was always one of my favorite subjects. You know, if I was going to be a surgeon, it would probably have been a neurosurgeon or a neurologist. Yeah. So delving into the neuroscience certainly was one of the first things I did, and it was. Immensely fascinating, you know, learning the role of dopamine and serotonin, you know, uh, you know, the brain opioids and all, all that sort of stuff, you know. So the mechanics of addiction, which seemed to fit the, you know, the medical definition of a disease, certainly were all there. But I'll tell you, the one thing that it didn't do, it didn't give me the why. Yeah. I understand chemical changes that happen in the brain I understand you know that you know due to a massive alteration in dopamine functioning you know what you have is you know pathological reward seeking pathological relief seeking um, you know but in spite of all of the knowledge that I had about you know, the changes in the brain and the alteration of, of neurochemistry it could not and it did not tell me why. Yeah, why? I, I why I became an addict, and you know that was the answer that I wanted more than any. Uh, you know, and so I searched for it, and eventually, um, 
uh, you know, one day I was listening uh, to someone talking, uh, you know, about 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 a book that they'd read, and you know, it was the center that I was at, at and they said it was it was an amazing book, you know, and that, that you know, everybody should read it, and you know, it was someone I, I I quite respected. So I thought, well, I'll read it, you know, and I'll, I'll see what I think. And so the title of the book is um, uh, "The Drama of the Gifted Child" by uh, uh, a Swiss psychoanalyst, Alice Miller. Um, and you know, I mean, she she wrote this book in German. I mean, the title is a bit misleading. The the, the real um, the real title of the book is "Prisoners of Childhood," right? But yeah. For some reason, when they translated it to English, they called it the drama of the gift of child, or the drama of the sensitive child. I don't know why, but, but they they did so. And I picked up this book and I read it. And this book was the start of the journey that led me to where I am now. You know, it helped me to understand that the events that happen in childhood shapes. Um, the trajectory that my life has taken, you know, and yeah. we now, I mean, this was, you know, some years ago, but increasingly through the you know, massive advances in imaging technology, we now know, you know, in very precise ways how the brain uh, in childhood is actually shaped by its interaction with the environment. And, you know, and then of course we had, you know, certain very seminal studies published. You know, there is the famous adverse childhood experiences study that was published in 1998, I think. You know, a very famous paper by Vince Valetti and Bob Ander. Um, you know, it's it's a bit of an irony that the reason they were commissioned to 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 do the research was because Kaiser Permanente were paying out too much money to obesity-related disorders, and they wanted these, these this doctor to go out there and fix it, so they didn't have to pay all this money. And what he found out instead was, you know, the reason why. I mean, you know, they could get these women to lose the weight, but they couldn't get the weight to stay off. To stay off, yeah. You know, and I don't know. Yeah, and and I think in a moment of frustration, or maybe in a moment of clarity, you know, I think. Faletti is on record as saying one day he just decided, look, I'm just going to talk to these people. And he sat down and talked to me. He goes, you know, you clearly have the capacity to lose this weight. You know, you lose this weight and, and, and you look great and you fit into that size 12 dress and suddenly, you know, and you look beautiful and your self-esteem goes up, you know, and everything that you want and all those things, you know, and, and so... Why do you then slip back into those old patterns again? And one of his patients one day said to him, uh, gave, said, uh, gave an answer and said, because when I look like that, then I know that no man will ever touch me the way my uncle did when I was seven. Hmm. And that answer just took him aback. And he thought, could there be a connection between things that happen in childhood and, and yeah. you know, and to cut, to cut a long story short, the ACE study showed not just that, um, you know, childhood trauma 
is a massive predictor of whether people become addicts or not. I mean, if you have, I mean, there are 10 possible ACE events, 10 possible ACE events. If you have seven or more ACE events, the chances of you becoming an intravenous heroin addict or, or drug addict goes up 4,600%. So we're really not talking small numbers here, but the other, but, but we're not just talking about addiction, um, Andy, we're talking about everything. If you've had, you know, I mean, it, it's what we call a dose response relationship. The higher the dose, the grace of the response. So the more ACE events you have in your childhood, the higher the chances are that you will get a whole plethora of illnesses. Everything from, you know, the obesity that they were commissioned to look at, you know, to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, autoimmune conditions, you know, I mean, you know, just about every chronic illness, you know, asthma, every everything had an implication. And people, when that paper was published, you know, people thought this is just too fantastical to be true. You know, that that is it is it that critical what happens in particularly in the first seven years of a child's life. Well, you know, from nineteen ninety-eight, you know, to two thousand and twelve, there were many i mean you've got to remember the first study that was done you know by eventually you know vince Folletti was joined by bob ander from the cdc so you had the full resources of the center of disease control now behind kaiser permanente we were not small themselves so they could really you know they could really open the taps up on this one <laughs> so it was you know so it was a huge study involving 15, 17,000 people, you know, they could really throw some money at this thing, you know, and just some staggering numbers that were coming out of it that people just couldn't believe, you know, that if you had, you know, between two to three, three ACE events, you know, um, that they could predict with startling accuracy that you were going to um, suffer with some sort of chronic illness, you know, before you reach the age of 55, and it would probably be heart related, or it would probably be, you know, uh, respiratory. It was, it was just, I mean, you have to read the paper yourself. I mean, it, it was, it's probably the most important medical paper published, well, in my opinion, anyway, you know, in the last 50 years, you know, because it it started a, a revolutionary way of thinking. You know, before that, we had what is called, a, you know, the Cartesian mind-body dualism. You know, you've got the mind, you've got the body, and those things are completely separate. Separate. I'm a doctor. I do yeah. the body. You know, if you're ill, you come to me. You know, what I'm interested are your red blood cells. I'm interested in your bones. I'm interested in your teeth. I'm a dentist. I'm interested in your skin. I'm interested in your blood work, I'm interested in your organ functions, I'm interested in your cells and in your molecules, but I'm not interested in how you feel. And I'm certainly not interested in what your environment is like, you know, because that's not what doctors do, right? That's why, I mean, it's called Cartesian because the original concept originated from, you know, René Descartes, the famous uh, philosopher. You know, it, this isn't what he was trying to say. You know, he didn't intend for this. Uh, I, I, well, at least I don't think this was 
what his intended impact was. I mean, when he said cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, he was trying to prove a philosophical point. I can't prove that I physically exist, but if I'm aware of the fact that I'm thinking, then I know simply from that awareness that I, you know, so he was, he was trying to prove a, a yeah. philosophical point yeah. that, got, that got hijacked and used, you know, to justify a system of medicine that's persisted for 350 years yeah. and the A study basically flattened it, you know, and suddenly, you know, books and articles that had been written, you know, I reference uh, the one that really altered the course of my life, you know, by Alice Miller, you know, the uh, drama of the gifted child, you know, that suddenly came to the forefront and people started asking questions about, you know, how much, you know, does a person's childhood play in what happens in terms of their, you know, their, their life trajectory, the health trajectory of their life, and how how big of an influence is it? I mean, is it really as big as these two, you know, crazy doctors say it is? I mean, because these are some some crazy numbers they're putting out here, you know, and uh, you know, and, and of course, you know. Uh, people like George Engel came to the front, you know, where he coined the phrase biopsychosocial. And he said, look, there is no division between mind and body. This is a, this is a false dichotomy. You know, you cannot separate a person's biology from their psychology and from their social environment. Each of the three things are part of the same triage. You know, there's, there's this triage. If you, if you distress someone biologically, you will have psychological and yeah. you will have sociological effects. Definitely. If, and it, but, but the corollary positions are also true. If you distress someone psychologically for a period of time, you'll end up with physiological effects, with biological effects, you know, and you will also end up with sociological effects, you know. So if you take someone's, you know, said psychological condition like depression, you know, commoners, you know, by 2025, said to be the the largest cause of disability globally, you know, overtaking heart disease, right? If you take someone and you, you you know, you make them depressed, right, you will see their body function start to suffer, you know, their lung function, their heart function, you know, their risk of um, heart disease and myocardial infarcts go up. Their C-reactive protein, which is a risk factor for heart attacks, go up. You know, so their their biological function suffers. You know, and their sociological function suffers as well. You know, what do depressed people do? They withdraw. You know, they're no longer productive members of society. They don't engage. You know, with the community in a way that is that is instructive, constructive, healthy, or anything like and that. Beneficial. And it's this, yeah, beneficial. And, you know, it, and it's and it's a triple corollary because it's the same with the, in, the environment. You know, if you put young men, you know, in very, very dangerous, violent environments when they're young, you will see psychological effects and you will see biological effects. I guarantee it. And West, and we see that, you know, in the gangs in LA, and, and, and uh, you know, these men, you know, they they uh, 
are psychologically extremely disturbed and biologically you know they they um, you know they they die very very young tragedy young you know of a whole host of different you know the rates of, of uh, illnesses you know childhood asthma everything from childhood asthma to also immune diseases just go through the roof and that's just from the environment so you know we've, we've had this data for a while but this paper really solidified it and so that's the second point um, at which I was then convinced and so I had to do something that perhaps no person really wants to do and I had to take a really hard look at my childhood you know and at things that I really didn't want to look at you know because there was a lot of a lot of things that happened there that may not have been what people traditionally think of as trauma you know I, I didn't grow up in a refugee camp or you know I didn't you know I wasn't in a tsunami or I didn't lose a parent or something you know but you know as time has evolved you know our definition of trauma our understanding of trauma has broadened and deepened and widened you know and it's really important when you talk about tra trauma to understand the context is the ability to contextualize it and let me illustrate what i mean yeah if let's say you've gone to sainsbury's to shop right and i say to you well i'll come and pick you up you know so you've done your shopping and you're standing outside sainsbury's with your shopping bags you know and it's cold winter day and it's sort of slightly busy and you know, and I'm late, and I'm nowhere to be seen, you know, and so you try getting me on the phone, and I'm not responding, you know, and, and you're standing there, and you're sort of mildly irritated, thinking, you know, he said he was going to be here, you know, half an hour goes by, an hour goes by, you know, and maybe you're getting a little bit worried, you know, but eventually the car pulls up, and, you know, you're slightly irritated, and, you know, what happened is, oh, sorry, I got stuck in traffic, oh, well, yeah, thought, thought it might be that, you know, it's sort of rush hour, okay doesn't matter right take that same situation but instead of you put in that place a four-year-old child yeah right yeah. exactly the same situation standing outside of Sainsbury's on a cold winter's day by yourself waiting for mommy to come and pick you up and for some reason she's not there and you've got no way of contacting her and you don't know if she's coming or not. As far as you're concerned, she's just disappeared. You know, and that four-year-old child does, has not yet developed the cognitive ability to, you know, reason to himself, well, you know, he's, she's probably just stuck in traffic, you know, it's rush hour or, you know, that, you know, bloody Rashi, you know, he's always late, that kind of, you know, that, that to that four-year-old child his world has essentially ended yeah. i mean his world has crashed you know yeah. his mummy has disappeared and he you know and the the and i don't i don't think i need to to go into too much detail the level of terror and and horror you know that that child would would experience you know and by the time the mother turns up 
you know, two hours later or whatever, that child would be absolutely hysterical. Yeah, beside himself. And yeah. by the way, yeah, and by the way, hysteria is the old name, but it's the, it's the, it's the old term of trauma. It's a term that we used to, to, to describe trauma, you know. So, you know, it's the context that you have to look at, you know. Getting picked up late outside Sainsbury's just doesn't sound like a big deal. It's like, come on, it's just, you know, you're just, you know, just a couple of hours late. What's the big, how can that be trauma? But when you contextualize it, you know, if you put a four-year-old child standing alone outside a school gate, you know, not knowing if anybody's coming, um, you know, becoming more and more frightened, you know, eventually becoming terrified and, you know, that's what can happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you're right as well. And you're right as well when you talk yeah. about that in terms of contextualizing it, in terms of you know our our the, the ages that we are at, our experiences. So even that, I mean, I know I've had yeah. I've had that similar experience where, and that's like you said, it's a school. I mean, I've had experience where a child is actually in the school. And they're crying their eyes out. I mean, I mean, sure, the child was, must have been about seven or eight. But because they're so used yeah. to being picked up at the same time every day, yeah, um, yeah, they can see that, and they know the mum's coming. They see the mum at the door, and they know that the mum's coming. Yeah. But for some reason, this, even though they're in this safe place, excuse me, which will be seen as a safe place, all of a sudden this place, yeah. yes, it might be safe, but. I'm, I mean, I, my mum's not coming. I'm, um, I'm, I'm worried. You know, all the things, anxiety kicks in, and those things can, like you said, it can manifest, or that could, it could disappear at once. It, but it's always in you, because then something will happen and trigger yeah. it later on in your life. So it's, yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So that's the first thing. You know, is to contextualize the event, right? But you know, the the thing is, if we say that that's the core of trauma then basically what we're saying is no parent can couldn't ever make a mistake because yeah. if you they did the child would be traumatized so clearly that's not the whole story yeah. because parents make mistakes all the time yeah. if mummy is two hours late she really didn't mean to do that you know i mean and when she arrives and little Johnny is just bawling his eyes out, you know, she probably feels, you know, just absolutely horrific, right? So, you know, clearly that happens all the time. You know, parents are always, uh, you know, they, they do, you know, and this is something, you know, a point I want to make very, very strongly, you know, this is in no way blaming parents because, you know, Apart from the, you know, identifiably, you know, uh, sociopathic and psychopathic one percent, you know, of the population, you know, everybody else does the absolute best they can. But parents will make these sorts of errors, right? So, what is the missing link? What turns that sort of event into a trauma? And the answer is the attachment between the parent and the child. It's how certain am I? How confident am I that that person isn't going to leave me or that person will protect me? 
or that when I turn to that person, you know, for, for comfort, that they're not going to hit me, right? That is the basis of attachment. Attachment is a mechanism that nature has given us for our survival, you know, because the human baby at birth is the most helpless in the whole of nature, right? Without a parent, it cannot survive in the wild. I mean, you know, a baby kitten can feed, you know, can, you know, can pretty much feed itself, you know, by the end of the first month of its life, you know, uh, a human baby at the first month of its life, you know, you know, can't even lift its, its head, you know. So there's this powerful mechanism that makes us attach to caregivers and ensures our survival, right? And so if we have powerful enough connect attachments, then those attachments are what compensate for these, you know, horrible things that all of us happen as, you know, uh, that happen to us as kids, you know, whether we get bullied at school or whether we get teased or whether we get, you know, whatever, you know, uh, uh, you know, beaten up by the school bully. It doesn't really matter. But if we have a firm enough attachment, you know, to a, to a parental figure, to a primary caregiver that we know that is, that is really solid, that is really secure, you know, then it fosters a sense of safety, fosters a sense of, of security, and it allows that child, um, you know, the confidence, you know, and it, it gives that child the ability to weather that kind of storm, yeah. you know, and because they know, you know, intuitively, no matter how bad things get, mummy will be there for them or daddy will be there for, right? But if a child, not only does he not think that mommy is going to be there for him or going to be there for, you know, not, does he, not only does he think that they're not going to be there, he actually thinks they're going to do the opposite. Rather than be there for him in a crisis, they're the ones actually causing the crisis. You know, they're you know instead of coming and helping them when they're in a in a in a really tight spot, they'll come and you know beat them to a pulp instead. So the people that you're turning to, that you rely on for security and for nurturing, you know, and for and for attachment, for safety, you know, the very people who are meant to provide these things actually do the opposite. Yeah. Right. The that. The damage that that does to the developing child's brain cannot be overstated because that is when we learn that relationships are at best unrewarding and at worst dangerous, you know? And our brains are arranged in such a way that when we're distressed, you know, and you, you know, we, we don't like to think us, of ourselves as human animals, but I'm sorry to tell you that we are human animals. You're a primate as, as much as I am, you know, yeah. we share 98% of our DNA with chimp. They, you know, they, 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 they turn towards each other, you know, when chimpanzees or when monkeys are frightened, what do they do? You know, they, 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 
grouped together into tight groups, they turn towards each other. But if as a child, the primary lesson you learn is don't turn towards people when you're distressed, then what do you do? You turn away from them, you turn towards something else to deal with that stress. Yeah. And at, at first you don't know what that is, you know, all you know is that you're just walking around terrified, you know, because you could get hit at any moment or you could get, you know, or anything could happen to you at any moment or whatever. But then one day somebody puts something, you know, in a glass in front of you and you drink it and you feel this warm, you know, this warm, um, nurturing sensation. And you think, oh, what's that? And someone says, oh, that's whiskey, you know, and suddenly you no longer need to turn towards people, people when you're yeah. frightened yeah. Or, when, or when you're distressed, you know, or when you're terrified, you know, because all you need to do is just turn to this, you know, uh, you know, to, to, you know, Mr. Walker's, you know, amber restorative and, and uh, you know, you'll be on your way, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, for some of us, it's, 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 you know, the amber restorative and for others it, it's pills and for yet others it's powders, but it doesn't matter. They all do the same thing. You know, they all do exactly the same thing in the brain. They give the brain what it would naturally have gotten if we had been able to turn towards people. I was going to ask you, does, and, yeah. and this is, because then obviously then you start to branch out into things like studies into things like the effects of um, the childhood effects of trauma on the sexes of you know both men girls and boys does that is there is is you know you know obviously you know we're all human and we have but we know that there's biological differences between the male and female um, do, would you yeah. say that the trauma of the trauma affects us differently, both men, both as a, at the lower level? I'm talking about when I say lower level, I'm talking about at the age level in terms of girls and boys. And does it affect us as well as men, as well as women? Um, now that, that's a very difficult question to answer because was well, it dependent on what the circumstances? Yeah. It really, yeah, it really does. I mean, there are certain types of trauma that if you're a girl, you're far more likely to suffer from than if you're a boy. So, you know, I would say something in the region of, you know, 95 to 98% of addict women I've worked with, you know, have been, uh, you know, have had some sort of, um, you know, sexual abuse, you know, um, as, a, as a child or as a teenager, right? Whereas in men, you know, you're looking at more, uh, you know, sort of in the, the sort of low 60%, I think, you know, the latest studies show. So in that sense, you know, there are those differences. But then in the other senses, you know, it's like if you're a, if you're a boy, you know, the chances that you're, you know, uh, you know, a victim of a violent father are much higher than if you're a girl. I mean, that's not to say that girls don't get hit, but... If you're a boy, you are far more likely to be beaten 
into a pulp by a drunk father than you are if you were a girl. So yes, there are differences um, depending on whether you're a boy or whether you're a girl yeah. and in what circumstances. Yeah, because what I was thinking was, because um, what I was thinking was, what are the effects of say abuse, um, sexual abuse? Like you say, if there's more, if it's more likely to affect a girl, what are the effects on a, a, a girl stroke woman as she's growing up in comparison to that if the same similar thing was happening to a boy? Would, would do we react to it differently? Um, that's a very, very interesting question. Again, it goes back I to would... experiences and stuff, but I'm just thinking yeah. that do we, do we, do we as men? How do women react? Right, yeah. How do we react? Because what obviously there's findings of things like there's more men committing suicide and more, you know, and all these sort of things around, yeah. you know, you know yeah. which is so prevalent. Yeah. There must be something in it that yeah. says that we maybe I don't know what you call it. We're not as not able, not as able to cope. What what are those things that's happening? More that's, vulnerable. Yeah, more vulnerable. Yeah. What, what well, are those things? Well, I mean. I'm sort of scanning my memory banks, you know, for for an academic paper that, you know, because I know I've read papers on this, but I I, I can't uh, bring to mind, you know, that that there are, you know, really significant differences. What I can tell you anecdotally, this is just purely anecdotally. I mean, just this is just coming from my clinical experience, right, from working with both men and women who have been sexually abused, you know, and I can tell you that. There are there are significant differences between the two, you know, and that women in general, I mean, again, you know, I have no research evidence to to back this up. You know, this may just be because of the type of therapy I do. I mean, I have no idea why this might be the case, but they definitely are more able to talk about and are able to you know, be willing to acknowledge and work on and overcome uh, sexual trauma than men are you know it, it it's much 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 harder or it, it seems to me anyway you know men are far less likely to admit to a sexual trauma that happened to them as, as a child than women and just that you know that that just that one thing alone is going to affect a huge number of you know i mean if you're if you're repressing you know and and are unable to talk about it it, it means you can't seek help for something that is deeply deeply distressing you know that pretty much is is you know, driving your unconscious mind on a daily basis, you know, and, and will probably make you depressed and might even drive you to suicide. You know, whereas if you're actually able to go to a therapist, you know, and you know, even go to a male therapist, you know, and if you understand transference and countertransference, you know, sometimes in those sessions, you know, those women will become, you know, will become extremely aggressive towards me. For no other reason than the fact that I'm a man, and the person who was responsible for what happened to them was also a man. In that moment, I am. You know, it's the nature of trauma. Yeah. Understand 
differences between traumatic memory and, and non-traumatic memory. You know, clearly, I mean, clearly, I don't have the time to kind of go into yeah, those yeah, sorts yeah. of details. But yes, yeah. What, 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 yeah, what I, what I can say for absolute sure is that women, you know, are far more able to be open about, uh, you know, sexual trauma and, and being raped being molested and, and having these horrific things happen to be attacked uh, sexually than men are. Mm. Men as a sort of a, you know, just a rule of thumb. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it takes a, a lot longer in the treatment trajectory before those sorts of details emerge. You know, just, I mean, I'm just looking over the span of my career and I'm just thinking of the, the men that I've worked with where, you know, the details did emerge, they usually emerge much, 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 much later in the treatment trajectory than in women. In women, very often it will emerge, if not right at the beginning, I mean, it rarely will emerge right at the beginning because they need to have a little bit of trust in you first. You have to build some rapport what we call a therapeutic alliance, but it, it tends to emerge, you know, relatively quickly. You know, within five or six sessions, they'll say, "Look, there's something I've been dreading to tell you, but I think you really need to know because this is going to be a very big part of the work that we do." This is what happened. Right? That conversation with women tends to happen a lot earlier than it does with men. You know, sometimes I can. I can work with men for months, you know, or even longer, and then one day they'll actually say, you know, there's been something, there's something I've been wanting to tell you for a very, very long time. I just, I just haven't known how to say it. And, you know, I finally feel safe enough to say it, you know, because my, you know, all of the other things, you know, that were causing, causing such destruction in my life, you know, and, now been, been dealt with and you've helped me in all these other areas of my life I'm now finally you know able and I feel finally safe enough you know and secure enough and stable enough to actually say you know that my uncle or my stepfather or whoever you know or aunt you know um did this, 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 and that to me when I was a child. You know? yeah. So, yeah, so that, that's, if that's the question you're asking me, definitely. Yeah. So you know, what, and it, I was going to say know. to you as well, what would, what sort of things, you know, not to go into too, you know, everything that you do, but what are some of the things you would do to help, say, um, a woman that's been, uh, you know, sexually abused and, you know, from a child and, you know, she's now taken it into adulthood and she's just come out and what would you what was what would be some of the things you would say um to them would you tread carefully would you what what would are some of the things you would say would i tread carefully yeah. well you know i mean that brings to mind a, a very famous poem you know by by william butler Yeats, and it goes and i being poor have only my dreams I spread my dreams beneath your feet. Tread softly because you tread upon my dreams. 
Mm. I mean, I live by those words because I, you know, I, I, I look at the people who come to me in that way. You know, all they have are their dreams, the dreams of being well. You know, the dreams of not being in this terrible distress that they're in, or that they, that this terrible depression that they're in. That's all they have, and they're they literally laying that in front of me. So, you know, I mean, maybe a maybe a slightly toughy, you know, toughish sort of answer to your question, you know, yeah. show off the answer to your question, but but they're they're they you know they, they they really are words that I live by. Yeah. You know, I I I walk very very softly, yeah. um, indeed. Yeah. But you know, yeah, you know, for 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 you know, women who've been sexually abused. I mean, we have we have very 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 uh, good you know proven therapies you know that that will help these women. Yeah. And they are very uh, you know uh, they're, they're they're different they're different types of therapies that you can use. Um, you know, and I'm trained in several of these methods and. It, just really depends on the context, uh, yeah. uh, what type of trauma it was. You know, but yeah, but you know, we have uh, compared to say, you know, the time when Alice Miller was writing this. You know, I mean, Alice Miller uh, was a psychoanalyst in the tradition of Jung and Freud. You know, and the thing that she saw that no one else did was the big problem with Freudian and Jungian, uh, you know, psychoanalysis was. It didn't take into account, you know, the childhood history. Yeah. You know, it, it, they at no point did they did did they say what happened to you as a child, right? And, and it was really her that was the first person to really recognize, you know, that what happened, you know, to that person as a child, yeah. you know, plays a critical role. In whatever pathology you see sitting in front of you, whether it's depression or whether it's rage or whether it's, you know, uh, an anxiety disorder or whether it's OCD or whether whatever it is, you know, that, you know, and so really learning to ask different questions because so often, you know, of, the, of, of people who are, you know, mentally unwell, certainly, you know, with addicts who are clearly, you know, Border on insanity, you know. Some of the things that we do, very often, you know, people will throw their hands up in the air and quite, quite reasonably, it seems, ask, you know, what is wrong with these people? You know, we, we give them every chance. We pay for, you know, treatment center after treatment center. You know, we, we give them opportunities and we, we, we do this for them and we do that. You know, what's what's wrong with them? Trouble is, that's the wrong question. The yeah. question that we need to be asking is not, not what's wrong with them. Yeah. We need to be asking what happened to them. And if we ask that question, we're far more likely to have a successful treatment outcome, whether they're male or female, whether the trauma was sexual or non-sexual, whether it involved violence or non-violence. You know, whatever it was. It's that starting point that is the key, right? It's helping the person to understand that even though they may be behaving in, you know, extremely destructive ways, you know, and they themselves believe 
there is something terribly, terribly wrong with them. Well, there must be because I'm crazy because, you know, who else would drink, um, you know, three liters of vodka and then, you know, drive a car, you know, down Main Street and, 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 and you know, knock over five lampposts. You know, clearly I'm a bad person. Clearly there's something wrong with me. But helping them to see that, you know, asking yourself what's wrong with you is in fact the wrong question. And that if we begin to ask ourselves what happened to you, we're much, 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 much more likely to get a successful treatment outcome, whatever the trauma is. I was going to ask you, um, you know, before we, we, because I could, we could talk about this you know, I think we can. I think we can go for another, another, another <laughs> episode because I mean it's so fascinating. What? Yeah. Just, just to kind of bring this one to a close because I think we're definitely going to have you to come back on and talk again. Um, what oh, would you, I would be very honest. Yeah. What would you? What would you say? Um, are the main, you know, the, the main issues or main issues or problems or whatever that's that's happening in. Barley, in terms of mental health. Main issues that are happening in Bali in terms of the mental health. Uh, well, at the present moment, I would say the main issue is um, the grinding poverty that you know you don't have to go very far to to see. You know, um, you know the sort of mass unemployment that has been, you know. Um, forced on you know the people and and um you know the, the fact that uh you know just trying to you know keep people fed and and you know uh you know put a roof over their heads and and you know at, at the moment you know those are the sort of i think you know the the, the big the big concerns you know just you know because because nobody has jobs um you know, income is scarce and people are frightened, you know, but things are starting to improve. Um, you know, a number of my friends, my wife included, you know, are involved in projects, you know, to get out there and raise money, you know, try and support people, you know, to make sure that, that you know, people get, mon- get money, um, you know, to be able to feed themselves and to, you know, keep the electricity on and, all that sort of stuff um but yeah you know at the moment you know that's the that's the real challenge in bali with, with, with um coronavirus crisis which i think is very different maybe to what's uh in the challenges that are facing you know people living in london say yeah or singapore big city yeah yeah like i say i'd like to say thank you for coming on and like I say, I want to get you back on as quickly as possible. I know we've had a bit of back and forth oh. on social media, kind of trying to yeah. get you on. But now, you know, you know, to hear your story, I mean, I, you know, there's obviously bits there that I'd like to, you know, have a second part on this as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've, you know, it's been it's been really good having you on and really fascinating hearing what the things that you've gone through um, and the things that you're seeing that are happening. Um, around you know the world you know we haven't even touched upon that yeah the world and even touched upon the coronavirus so yeah i'll definitely get you back on um to have you know another 
the second part. Well, Andy, you know, it's been thoroughly enjoyable talking to you about this. And yes, you know, corona, coronavirus and some of the events that are happening around the world, uh, certainly there are, I think, much deeper elements to that that we can discuss it. But it would be absolutely my pleasure to come on your show again. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, the hour or so that we've spent together, you know, talking about um, various subjects, subjects that we have, and um, thank you for inviting me on onto your wonderful show. That was Men Are Nuts. Speak to you soon. <laughs>